Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today, we want to discuss cardiac valves. Specifically, we're going to go through a quick overview of the flow through the heart and then talk about the different valvular diseases that we can see more so on the left side of the heart. While it is possible to have it on the right side, we're going to specifically talk about the mitral valve and the aortic valve with stenosis and regurgitation that can occur. And what are some of the anesthesia considerations that we're going to do if you are taking care of a patient that has one of these valvular diseases? And if it's going to be treated from a surgical standpoint, what are some things that we're going to be doing during that procedure to stabilize the hemodynamics of the patient? So starting us off here, I'm just going to go through a quick overview of the flow through the heart. Again, this is pretty basic. I'm assuming most of us know this, so I'm going to fly through it. But just to recap before we get started, blood's going to return to the right atrium from the upper part of the body through the superior vena cava, and then from the lower part of the body through the inferior vena cava. That's going to converge on the right atrium, all venous blood. It's going to go into the right ventricle. The right ventricle is going to be less pressure than the left ventricle because it's not going to have to force as much blood into the rest of the body. It only has to force blood into the pulmonary vasculature. So this is going to be a thin walled ventricle compared to the musculature of the left ventricle. It's going to force blood out of the pulmonary valve into the pulmonary artery, which is going to still be venous blood. It's going to go into the pulmonary vasculature, get oxygen from the lungs, dump off carbon dioxide, come back through the pulmonary vein, which will now be oxygenated blood, into the left atrium. From there, the left atrium will pump through the mitral valve into the left ventricle, which is going to be a lot more musculature compared to the right ventricle because it has to force blood out through the higher afterload and the systemic vascular resistance of the rest of the body to pump blood out through that area. So it'll pump blood through the aortic valve into the aorta, around the aortic arch to the rest of the body. So that's the flow through the heart. We're basically going to focus more so, like I said, on the left side here. So Tanner, do you just want to do an overview on some of the different types of disorders that we can see in terms of insufficiency with regurgitation and then stenosis? I think having a good understanding, first of all, of just stenosis versus insufficiency or regurgitation is important. And then you can apply those concepts to the different valves. So think about stenosis. It makes perfect sense. If something's stenotic, it's stiffer. It's going to be more difficult to pump blood through that stenotic valve. An issue of regurgitation is where it's not closing properly. And so when all of the blood flow should be moving forward, you're going to have some backflow there because it's basically like uh, the floor giving out when the blood is being ejected into the next phase. And so uh, as that valve opens, you'll have some backward flow. Both of these are going to result potentially in decreased amount of blood flow moving forward. It's just for two different reasons. One is because, again, it has a smaller window to eject through. And the other reason is because you're not getting an efficient ejection because you're having some of that blood flow move backwards. The goal of the valves is to move blood through the heart. So you're going to go from an area of higher pressure to an area of lower pressure. And you want to do that without allowing the higher pressure chambers to push blood back into those lower pressure chambers. 
your stroke volume is going to be your end diastolic volume minus your end systolic volume of your left ventricle. Your EF is going to be your stroke volume divided by your end diastolic volume times 100. A couple other things that you need to just know, uh, S1 is going to be the closure of the mitral and tricuspid valves. So this will mark the onset of systole. S2 is going to be the closure of the aortic and pulmonary valves. This will be the onset of diastole. Talk a little bit more here about stenosis. So stenosis is going to cause a pressure overload due to the previous chamber having to push through that smaller area to push through that stenotic valve. So this can result in muscles lining that previous chamber to form more of those sarcomeres, more of those working units of the muscle. And this will become a thicker muscle and results in concentric hypertrophy. So this will be more of your thick walls and less radius inside the chamber. So this is where you're going to have very thick muscle, less volume. So that's very important to make that distinction. Regurgitation, this is going to cause an increased volume in the previous chamber. So that's because of that blood flow that's coming back through the valve. This chamber will accept more and more volume and the sarcomeres here will develop in series rather than in parallel. What this amounts to is eccentric hypertrophy, which increases the radius inside the chamber. And so this is going to be different than, than the stenotic picture. Remember, stenosis is going to cause those sarcomeres to form in parallel. This is going to cause a thicker muscle, less volume or radius inside the chamber. Regurgitation, the sarcomeres are going to form in series, not parallel. This is going to be eccentric hypertrophy, and this is going to increase the volume or radius inside the chamber and not have that thicker wall muscle. Right. And so I like to remember this with eccentric hypertrophy, since it increases that radius and accepts more volume inside of it, it's the result of when we have volume overload. Whereas that concentric hypertrophy where the walls just become really, really thick, that's due to that pressure overload where it's just constantly trying to squeeze out through that harder pressure. So just keep that in mind as we go through this talk. That'll help significantly if you get that straight. One other thing we want to discuss before we actually go into the different forms of valvular disease is going to be the pressure volume loop. So I highly encourage you, if you are not driving right now, to look at a pressure volume loop. Go ahead and just Google it, and I'm going to walk through what is happening here. I promise you, you're going to want to know this. This is going to be on boards, on the C exam, probably on your individual tests. It's just good to know in general um, for determining if patients do have valvular disease. You can determine what kind of valvular disease based on this pressure volume loop of the ventricle. So what this loop is, is going to be an XY graph with on the X axis is going to be volume and on the Y axis is going to be pressure. And this specifically is dealing with the ventricle. So we're going to be talking about the left ventricle here. And you're going to see a rectangular box that it's outlined here in this graph. And I'm going to start describing it from the bottom left point on this box. And it's going to go in the counterclockwise direction. So it's going to go across to the right and then up, back to the left, and then back down to where it starts at. That's the direction of how we're going to read this graph. So to start in the bottom left-hand corner, this is when the mitral valve just opens. So between the left atrium and the left ventricle. And what this is going to do is allow volume to start filling into that left ventricle. So blood is going to be pouring into the left ventricle. 
So since our x-axis is volume, you're going to see our graph start to work horizontally across to the right because more and more volume is forming inside of this ventricle. The pressure is going to slightly increase as the volume continues to pour in, but for the most part on a healthy patient, the ventricle is compliant and so it expands as the volume fills and the pressure doesn't increase that much. At the very end of this horizontal part of our graph over to the right, you're going to see a little bit of an uptick and this is when the atrium is going to completely contract, squeeze that last little bit of blood into the left ventricle and that mitral valve is going to snap shut right when you see the turn of this graph and the line goes straight upwards. This is because as the line goes straight upwards, we're isovolumetric contraction. And you can tell you're an isovolumetric because the line is straight up and down. You're not going more on that horizontal axis, which is the volume. So your pressure is just going to increase and the line's going to go straight up without changing the volume. So this is the isovolumetric contraction. The ventricle has started the systole, started to contract, but both valves are closed. At the top here, you're going to see the line start to curve. And this is when the aortic valve opens, and now volume is going to squeeze out into the aorta. As this happens, you're going to see the line on your graph start to shift back to the left because the volume is decreasing now inside this ventricle. The pressure is going to still rise, so it kind of makes this little curved part of the graph. And it's because you're still squeezing, squeezing, squeezing all the way tight, so that pressure is still going up. And then it starts to fall down a little bit once you get all that volume out. Now notice that the graph doesn't go all the way down to zero. The volume does not go back to zero because there's always some volume left in the ventricle. And this is how you calculate your ejection fraction and your stroke volume. So your stroke volume is going to be how much volume you had right when that mitral valve closed when you started that isovolumetric contraction minus what you have left here at the end of this systole. Typically it's around the 70 milliliter mark on a healthy patient. You might have like 120 at the end of diastole when the mitral valve closes and about 50 left at this point in a healthy patient. So once the aortic valve closes, the ventricle is going to completely relax and you're going to have isovolumetric relaxation where the line's going to go straight back down on your graph back to our original starting point, which now the mitral valve is going to reopen because the pressure is going to end up being higher in the atrium then the ventricle, once it relaxes all the way back down, and so the blood starts to fill back in that ventricle. So hopefully that makes sense. And as we go through these different disease processes and with valvular diseases, we can see how this is going to shift this volume loop curve. So just keep that in mind. Perfect. So moving back to a little bit of the anatomy, remember that the mitral valve is going to be between the left atrium and the left ventricle. The mitral valve is a bicuspid valve, which has a anterior medial and a posterior lateral leaflet. Normal area inside the valve when it's opened is about four to six centimeters squared, which is actually more than I was initially thinking. That seems like a larger surface area than uh, what I would have assumed that to be. There are papillary muscles and the chorda tendine attached to the valve, and that's what keeps it in place. Now we know that the mitral valve is here on the left side of the heart. But now let's talk about a little bit of the pathophys involved with the mitral valve, specifically here for mitral stenosis. Again, this is going to be a narrowing of that valve, so you're going to have a limited amount of blood flow from the left atrium to the left ventricle. Signs and symptoms of this, you can see pulmonary congestion. This makes sense if the blood flow is not wanting to move forward into the left ventricle. It's going to want to back up from the left atrium and therefore it's gonna go back there into your pulmonary system. If it's bad enough, it can show in right ventricular overload and decreased cardiac output. 
You'll hear this as a diastolic murmur in early diastole over the cardiac apex. This is commonly caused from endocarditis or rheumatic fever. Atrial pressures are going to rise as more blood is restricted from flowing through the valve. This increased pressure is going to create more and more of a gradient uh, to help push more fluid through. And so that left atrial pressure will just continue to move up. As the valve continues to narrow and the disease continues to progress, the cardiac output will continue to decrease because of the lower stroke volume. So initially, your heart rate is going to increase to compensate for the lower stroke volume, but actually we want a slower heart rate usually because this will allow more time for blood to actually fill that left ventricle and we'll be able to get through that stenotic mitral valve. When the area is less than one, so remember that the normal is going to be that four to six centimeters squared. So if your area is less than one, even a slow heart rate is not going to provide enough therapy there to have a good cardiac output. As the atrial pressure is going to get higher, so again, we talked about that here, as it will continue to try to create a gradient, so it'll continue to get higher, you're going to have left atrial hypertrophy, and this is going to cause an increased risk of AFib. If uh, you remember about 25% of the left ventricular end diastolic volume is from the atrial kick. So if you're in a fib, you basically lose all of the atrial kick, you lose then your cardiac output. And then you could also have some more pulmonary edema from this just retrograde flow since you're losing all this atrial kick and you already have a stenotic mitral valve. Pulmonary congestion will increase with left atrial pressures above 25 millimeters of mercury. This will cause your wedge pressure on the pulmonary artery catheter to overestimate your left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And so you'll have a bigger A wave there on the wedge waveform. So remember that your left atrium is going to have concentric hypertrophy. Again, remember this concentric hypertrophy is because those sarcomeres are being formed in parallel. And so you're going to have a very thick muscle and then you're going to have a decreased radius in that left atrium. If you're looking at your wedge pressure on a pulmonary artery catheter, it will show an increased wave and a decreased wide descent. This is all important when we're talking about our anesthesia considerations because you're going to want to keep their heart rate low. And so you're going to want to treat low blood pressure with Neo rather than, say, ephedrine. It's important that they have adequate time to fill that left ventricle. Just think about it. You're basically pushing all the same amount of blood through a much smaller space, even as small as one centimeter compared to that four to six. And so if that's the case, then it just makes sense. You're going to need more time to push through that smaller space. And so this is something that we really need to monitor and do our best to help them by keeping their heart rate low. You want to, again, make sure that they're not in a fib. You want to have that strong atrial kick. You want to make sure that they have good cardiac contractility so they get as much out of that ventricle as possible. And if you do have reduced amount of actual flow there in the left ventricle, you're going to want to ensure that you're getting all of that ejected out into the systemic circulation and not just letting that sit there in that left ventricle. If they have tachycardia, again, that's just going to decrease the amount of time that is going to fill that left ventricle. And subsequently, you're going to have a decreased cardiac output. With this decreased cardiac output, you're going to have obviously less blood leaving the heart here and you're at more risk for having some pulmonary edema. You can give diuretics here to decrease your left atrial pressure, 
but all in all, you want to avoid meds that will increase your pulmonary vascular resistance since it's already increased. So you're not going to want to give things such as nitrous oxide. Bottom line here is that you need to be very cognizant that they are very reliant on this atrial kick. And so any kind of arrhythmia, especially AFib there, is going to be very detrimental to the amount of blood flow that's moving through that stenotic valve. Also, you want to make sure that they have adequate time for that blood to move from that left atrium to the left ventricle. So anything that is going to cause them to be tachycardic, so in anesthetics, think about our stimulating parts of the procedure, think about induction, think about emergence. These are things that you're going to really want to manage and get ahead of that so that you're not having this tachycardia, decreased cardiac output, pulmonary edema, respiratory problems. This can all stem from that stenotic valve and not managing our blood flow appropriately. Great. So that pretty much sums up mitral stenosis. So if you're thinking about that pressure volume loop, what are you going to see compared to the normal? Well, you're going to see it shifted slightly to the left and it's going to be down, meaning you're not going to have as much volume that can fill that left ventricle because of that stenotic mitral valve. So when that pressure volume loop starts at the bottom left and goes over to the right, it's not going to fill with as much volume. So when you turn and go upwards for that systolic contraction, you're not going to have as much volume to begin with. So rather than 120 mils, you might have only 100 mils. And then the pressure is not going to build up as high because, again, you don't have as much volume in there. It's just not going to form as much pressure. So just keep that in mind that if your loop is slightly lower and shifted to the left, that's a good sign of mitral stenosis. So now let's move into mitral regurgitation. So typically the mitral valve is closed during ventricular systole. However, with mitral regurgitation, a portion of the blood is going to be pushed back into the left atrium during this ventricle systole, and that's because the valve doesn't close properly and it's insufficient. So regurgitation and insufficiency are interchangeable words. If you see one or the other, it means the same thing. You're going to hear a systolic murmur over the cardiac apex at the fifth intercostal space on the midclavicular line, and this can sometimes radiate up to the axilla. And it's important to understand here that the length of systole is going to increase the amount of blood that is pushed back through this altered mitral valve and going back into that atrium. So aka, if I have a slower heart rate, it's going to increase the amount that can get pushed back. So I'm going to want a higher heart rate because then there is less time spent in systole and less blood will get pushed back through. So at first you would think you'd want to slow down the heart rate to prevent that, but you actually want to increase the heart rate because it decreases the amount of time that they are in systole. And I'll get into that here in a second. But let's first talk about the difference between acute mitral regurgitation, which can be caused by something like a papillary muscle rupture, which is the muscle that holds that valve in place. This will cause an immediate elevation of that left atrial pressure because that left atrium is not used to having blood getting push back from the ventricle into it. And so you're going to have a backward flow very suddenly of blood and the atrium is not ready to comply with that increase in volume. So that blood is going to back up all the way into the pulmonary circuit and cause some pulmonary edema. Whereas chronic mitral regurgitation, this results in a slow left atrium increased pressure because over time that left atrium slowly gets better at accommodating that increased pressure. So the atrium can become more compliant, which allows for less atrial pressure, but larger in diastolic volumes, aka the left atrium with a chronic mitral regurgitation over time slowly morphs itself to adapt more and more volume. 
So there's less pulmonary hypertension that develops. Less blood is getting back into that pulmonary circuit. So acute MR is way worse than chronic MR. And so since more blood goes back into the left atrium, there's going to be more blood, if you can think about it here, more blood that comes back from the atrium into the ventricle during that next diastole. So let's say that the atrium usually pushes 70 mils of blood with each diastole into the left ventricle. But then during systole, 10 mils of blood is going to get pushed back into that left atrium. Well, now that left atrium has 80 mils of blood that on the next pump is going to push into the left ventricle. So this over time results in more blood coming from the atrium into the ventricle during diastole, which results in an increased left ventricular and diastolic volume. This chronic increased volume in the left ventricle leads to that eccentric hypertrophy. If you remember what Tanner talked about, this is where you have the dilated chamber, a bigger radius with thinner walls, because those sarcomeres increase in series rather than in parallel. So they're allowed to accept more of that volume that's coming from that atrium. So keep in mind that this is different than the concentric hypertrophy, which is due to that pressure overload and results in a thick muscular wall. So if the afterload in the aorta, so now we're talking past the aortic valve or in the aorta now, if that afterload is decreased, what's going to happen when my ventricle contracts? So if that afterload is decreased, the ventricle is going to have an easier job at pushing blood through into the aorta. If the aorta has a higher afterload, so if I have my systemic vascular resistance even higher, the ventricle has a harder time pushing blood into the aorta, and there's more of a chance that it's going to push blood back through that damaged mitral valve with the root regurgitation and push the blood back into the atrium. So it should make sense in your mind then that our goal should be to keep MAP low in these patients because we want to encourage the forward progress of flow from the ventricle into the aorta during systole versus going back into the left atrium. So we should try to keep our MAP low with vasodilators, such as nitroprusside, which will encourage that forward flow. And then like I talked about earlier, we want to increase our heart rate to keep fluid moving through and keep contractility up. So you may need inotropes to help squeeze that blood and push it out and forward rather than let it go back into the left atrium. This is why neuroactual anesthesia is accepted in these patients. It's fine to do neuroactual anesthesia because it'll decrease our afterload, which makes it an even better picture to push blood through. Isofluorine is also going to be a good choice for these patients because it causes vasodilation with an increased heart rate. So that's exactly what we want to do. We want to decrease our SVR. We want to increase our heart rate. What you're going to see on the pressure volume loop for this is the rectangular box is going to be lower and extended more to the right. This is because more volume is going to fill into that left ventricle due to the increased volume coming from the atrium. So that's why it extends more to the right. But the pressure is not going to be as high because it has that dilated eccentric ventricle, which allows it to accept more volume. So the pressure is going to be lower and it's going to be more extended out to the right. All right. So moving on, let's talk about the aortic valve. So this is going to be your valve between the left ventricle and the aorta. Area here is about two and a half to three and a half centimeters squared. If your valve area is less than about 50%, then you're going to see signs and symptoms such as angina. You can see syncopal episodes. You can see CHF. This can be caused by things like endocarditis and, again, rheumatic fever. You're going to hear a systolic ejection murmur over the third intercostal space on that right midclavicular line. Here, uh, you'll see your left ventricle will develop a concentric hypertrophy. Again, remember that if you're having stenosis, you're going to develop a concentric hypertrophy in the previous chamber. So this, again, is going to be where you have your sarcomeres developing 
in parallel, you're going to have a very thick muscle. And this is as it's trying to push against that reduced opening there in the aortic valve. Eventually, this concentric hypertrophy is going to lead to decreased contractility. So your left ventricular end diastolic pressure is going to continue to raise compared to the aortic systolic pressure. And you're going to have a longer systolic ejection to help force that blood out of the ventricle. Again, remember that the heart rate is very important in these stenotic pictures because you need a longer period of time to force that blood through that narrowing valve. This will reduce the amount of coronary supply, which is usually happening during diastole. So people with very severe aortic stenosis will often get this angina picture, and this is because of that decreased coronary perfusion there because of the increased time it takes there for that systolic ejection. As your ejection fraction is decreased, blood is going to back up and cause a higher left atrial pressure. When this is severe enough, this can result in actually back up into the pulmonary circuit. Now thinking about our anesthesia considerations, you're going to want to keep your heart rate normal. Tachycardia will decrease the amount of diastolic filling time, so you're going to have less preload, you're going to have less cardiac output. And then think about bradycardia, that's going to lead to overdistension of that ventricle and can actually decrease your coronary perfusion pressure. So you're going to want to kind of split the road there and keep them with a normal heart rate here for the aortic stenosis. It's very important that you maintain afterload and diastolic blood pressure because this is going to be the key drivers of your coronary perfusion. So this is why you don't want to do neuroaxial anesthesia here with somebody with severe aortic stenosis because it'll reduce their SVR. When you reduce their SVR, then you're going to, again, decrease their afterload, and this is going to decrease that coronary perfusion. If they're hypotensive, you're going to want to give phenylephrine. Avoid things with histamine release because that histamine release is going to cause tachycardia. Again, like we said, you want to keep these people in a normal range for their heart rate. You don't want them to be too tachycardic, and you don't want them to be bradycardic either. You may want to use higher opioids rather than some volatile anesthetics with these patients because your volatile anesthetics are going to have a more significant cardiac depressive effect than your opioids. Keep an eye on your volume status. You're going to want to keep a normal to increase preload because you're going to want to try to fill that non-compliant ventricle as much as possible. Again, remember that ventricle is going to have a very thick, stiffened wall with that concentric hypertrophy. And so volume here is going to be very important. It's interesting to think about with CPR in the case of cardiac arrest here, you're not going to produce enough pressure to push blood out of the ventricle in severely aortic stenotic patients. And so this is something that is just, you know, obviously you're trying to avoid in all patients, but this is going to uh, be very, very serious and detrimental in these patients that have severe aortic stenosis. And when thinking about the pressure volume loop here, the pressure is going to be higher in the left ventricle for these patients simply because they're unable to squeeze that volume out through that narrowed aortic valve. And so that's going to require a lot more pressure. So you're going to see a taller rectangle on this graph than the normal one because it requires more pressure. It might be slightly shifted to the right, meaning that we're going to have a little bit more volume because it's going to have a harder time squeezing volume out. And so you're also going to have a increased left in systolic volume. So not only is the furthest right point of this graph shifted over to the right, but your left side is going to be shifted to the right as well because you're not going to be able to squeeze as much of that volume out.
Moving now on to the last part we want to talk about, which is aortic insufficiency. Acutely, this can be caused by endocarditis or chronically, it can be caused by usually rheumatic valvular disease, also some other things. A diastolic murmur is what you will be able to auscultate here, and this is along the left sternal border. Blood can move back from the aorta to the left ventricle in this case, which causes eccentric hypertrophy in the left ventricle. So that insufficiency or regurgitation is the same thing we talked about with the mitral valve. Blood is now going to move back from the aorta into that left ventricle. This is going to cause the same type of picture, eccentric hypertrophy in the left ventricle due to that fluid overload rather than the pressure overload. So in the chronic form, this slowly occurs, so the ventricle is going to be able to tolerate it better because it slowly increases the volume. And there's not going to be as much of a backup in blood flow because that ventricle remodels itself into that eccentric hypertrophy and allows it to accept more volume due to that bigger radius. Especially in acute form, or if the chronic form continues to progress, it can lead to that mitral regurgitation then, which backs up to the pulmonary circuit and then backs up all the way to the right side and et cetera. If this continues to progress or is in the acute form, you're going to have that rapid backup in blood flow. So it's also important to keep in mind here, and Tanner already touched on this a little bit, coronary perfusion pressure. This is the result of two things. One, we need your aortic diastolic blood pressure to be high, meaning when the aortic valve is closed and we're in diastole, whatever pressure is left in the aorta at that point is what's going to drive the blood into the coronary vasculature and supply blood to the heart itself. At the same time, if you have that enlargement of the left ventricle, due to that left ventricle and diastolic pressure becoming very enlarged, it can compress those coronary vasculatures, which will decrease the amount of blood that can get through them. So ideally, we want to have an increased aortic diastolic pressure to drive that blood through, while also limiting the amount of pressure we have from the ventricle itself, pushing and compressing on that coronary vasculature. So in the acute form of aortic insufficiency, if we have that quick increase in left ventricle and diastolic pressure, along with a decreased aortic diastolic pressure because blood is moving back from that aorta into the ventricle, that's going to result in a reduction of coronary perfusion pressure. Our anesthetic considerations here, we want to maintain a high normal heart rate. So with the regurgitation in this case, the aortic valve is going to be now further down the line from the left ventricle than the mitral valve was. So in this case, we want to maintain a higher heart rate, a high normal heart rate around the 80 to 100 range, because this will keep the blood moving through. Because if we're sitting in diastole longer, the blood is able to then come back from the aorta into the left ventricle when the aortic valve is technically closed, but partially open because we have this insufficiency. So if we're in systole more frequently with a, a little bit higher of a heart rate, this will keep the blood pushing through and limit the amount of time the blood can come back. We also want to maintain our preload and contractility just to encourage the amount of blood flow moving through the left ventricle and not allowing it to come back. And then lastly, we can do neuroactual anesthesia because this will decrease our afterload. And this is kind of what we want here. We want to increase the heart rate while decreasing that afterload to encourage the amount of blood getting pushed through. Just again, keep in mind here that decreased aortic diastolic blood pressure will also decrease the coronary perfusion pressure. But as long as we're limiting the left ventricle and diastolic pressure, we hopefully should be okay in this case in terms of providing enough blood flow through the coronary arteries. So to wrap up here, the pressure volume loop of this ventricle for aortic regurgitation, this is going to be shifted to the right. But the important distinction here is that the top left part of the graph, rather than having an isovolumetric decrease in your pressure, it's going to be slanted. This is because during diastole, 
you're not going to be completely closed with no volume getting shifted to the valve. You're going to have volume leaking back into the left ventricle. So you're going to have a slant from the top left coming down to the bottom right on the left side of your graph because the volume is going to be increasing when you're in diastole. And that's an important thing to note that I forgot to mention when we were talking about the mitral regurgitation. When systole starts, you're going to have a slant rather than that isovolumetric increase in pressure due to the fact that blood is going to leak back out of the ventricle into the left atrium before that aortic valve opens up. So your volume will actually shift back to the left and become lower during that point of the mitral regurgitation. So I know this is a lot. If you need to re-listen to it, pull up one of those loops that you can kind of visualize what I'm talking about. It should make a lot more sense. Hopefully this is a talk that will increase your knowledge of these valvular disease processes and what are ways that we can manipulate things to provide the most hemodynamic stability to these patients.